Our Old Testament scripture reading is from the 42nd chapter of Genesis. When Jacob learned there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor of the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, in truth we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him in the journey that you are to make, he would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to shield. The word of the Lord. 
One Ancient Hope, it's good to be with you this morning as we continue through our series on the, uh, sorry, the, the narrative of, of Joseph. And before we turn to this text, let us turn to the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are and all that you've given to us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truths that it teaches us. Thank you for the way that you reveal yourself in your word. And thank you, Lord the way that your word proclaims the gospel of Christ Jesus to us. And I do pray, Lord, that all the words that follow would be faithful to your intentions, to this text, and that you would apply these truths to our heads, to our hands, and to our hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray, and the power and the efficacy of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I want to look at today's text under three headings, and in all of these headings show us how God calls his people to actions that are intentional, actions that are good, but also actions that are often difficult. This is what God calls us to. And so I want to look at it, I want to look at these actions under three headings. We have acts of responsibility, Acts of reconciliation and acts of repentance. And let's look at each of those in turn, starting first with acts of responsibility. And if you remember from the reading, today's passage actually begins with a kind of rebuke to resignation, a rebuke to inactivity. We read this. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? Go down and buy grain for us in Egypt that we may live and not die. And again, as we talked about last week, the seven years of plentiful harvest have now been followed by seven years of severe famine. And what we see here is that the famine has not only affected Egypt, but also the surrounding area of Canaan. Jacob and his family are without food. And as Jacob tells us, the conditions are dire enough that death has become a threat. But amidst this devastating famine, we see that the brothers are doing nothing of real consequence to help the family's situation. They're simply sitting on their hands. They're sitting around doing nothing. As Jacob tells us, they are sitting around and looking at each other. But God means all that is happening, even this famine, for good. Again, as we've said each week, a key, perhaps the key statement for understanding and interpreting the life of Joseph are Joseph's own words to his brothers, hard-earned words of wisdom near the end of his life. He tells them, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And one good that God is working here through this famine is confronting and healing the inactivity, the resignation of the brothers. God has confronted them with a situation in which they must act. They must face the difficult realities of the famine. And they must do so for the good of their family and the good of their community. God has confronted them with a situation that is very hard for them. But it will also prove good for them. And this is a very, very important truth for us today. In modern society, there are more and more and more and more ways into which we are pressed into inactivity. 
We have more and more things that distract us from the circumstances of life, the circumstances that should be calling us into action. We, like Jacob's sons, have more and more ways of simply sitting around and looking at one another instead of doing what needs to be done. Friends, beware the distractions that pull you away from your actual life and the actual responsibilities that God has placed upon you. Consider an example, and, and this is one that hits close to home for me. I was reading an article last week on a Chicago Cubs website, and it was reflecting on the, the tough end to a, a promising year. And it was interesting, thinking about the close of the Cubs baseball season, the writer, the writer of the article, he shared this quote from the late baseball commissioner, Bart Giamatti. Baseball breaks your heart. It is designed to break your heart. The game begins in the spring when everything else begins again, and it blossoms in the summer, filling the afternoons and evenings. And then, as soon as the chill rains come, it stops and it leaves you to face the fall all alone. You count on it, rely on it to buffer the passage of time, to keep the memory of sunshine and high skies alive, and then, just when the days are all twilight, when you need it most, it stops. I mean, I read this at my computer and I almost wept. Right? <laughs> I had to tell Matthew that there was, there was something in my eye. This was an emotional experience. And as a fan of baseball or any sport, we have to ask ourselves, do I or do my family, does my family, does it need baseball like this? Does the end of the season break our heart in this way? Does the close of the baseball season leave us to face the fall and then the winter all alone? We have to ask, has this good thing taken up too much of my attention? Has it kept me from actually doing what needs to be done? Has it become a distraction from good and necessary action? Has it become a way that we just kind of sit around and, and look at each other? What have I left undone in, in focusing on these nine players doing things that have no direct connection to my own life? Has it kept me from all of the things that God has called me to do for my family, for my friends, for my church, for my community? And yes, baseball brings my family together in a good way, and that's important. But at what point does it actually keep us from engaging one another? Am I left to face the fall and the chill rains all alone? If so, then it has become a form of resignation. It's become a distraction that keeps me from doing what God has called me to do. And, and maybe for you, it's not the ending of a sports season. Maybe it's the ending of your favorite show or podcast, the ending of your vacation, the ending of some good book or novel. Perhaps it's the end of some online sale or, or that feeling right after, right after you open up the Amazon box that just came in the mail. Once you turn off the TV or take off the headphones, once you get off the return flight or, or turn the last page, once the giddiness stops and you open the box, are you left to face the fall all alone? Have you lost a key way that you buffer the passage of time? Have you lost what you need most at the very moment when you need it most? If this is the case, then all of this is just like Jacob's sons, 
a way that we're sitting around and looking at one another. They become ways that we distract ourselves from the famine, the actual circumstances of life that call us to good and necessary work. And once that thing is gone and over, are we left to face the famines of life alone? Friends, there is food in Egypt. And so turn off the TV or the computer or the phone or the podcast and do what needs to be done. Ask yourself, what are the difficulties of life that you are ignoring, that you are distracting yourselves from because it's easier to sit around and look at one another or to look at your computer or phone screen? And these can be directly practical. For instance, maybe you just need to sit down and make a budget to get a handle on your finances. Could be more practical. Maybe you just need to sit down and make a call to get your window fixed so that your house can be warm for your roommates, for your family, for the winter. And that also is an example that hits very close to home. Please do keep me accountable about that. There's also bigger, bigger, uh, bigger, sorry, it's bigger picture questions here. Have you really ever sat down and thought about, what is it that my child needs to know? What is it that my child needs to be able to do before my child graduates from high school? It's an important question, and that's a question that calls all of us, the whole church, to action. Or maybe you need to step back and ask yourself, how much time do, do, do I, or how much time does my whole family spend looking at the screen rather than actually engaging each other. In these ways, we are acting like Jacob's sons. But there's another way, another way in this passage that we can practice the inactivity of Jacob's sons. And this one is not so much resignation as reactivity. At the very end of the passage, the brothers learn that the money has been put back into their bags, and they worry that when they return to Egypt, they will be accused of being criminals. And the brothers and Jacob, they discuss their possible return to Egypt, especially since if they come back, they're going to have to bring Benjamin with them. And the brothers, they try to convince Jacob to send down Benjamin with them. And then Reuben, amidst the discussion, he says this, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. And this is an absolutely ridiculous proposal. How in the world would murdering his two sons make up for the death of Benjamin and the supposed death of Joseph? This reactivity is also a form of inaction. It's a way to push away or ignore the issue, the reality, the situation that's at hand. It's an emotional outburst that actually keeps us from addressing the issue at hand. And this is like all of us, and we can all relate to this when when we are sincerely, even gently confronted by another, someone who loves us about an area of correction that we need need in our life. And instead of listening, we respond with things like this. Well, I guess I'm just the worst friend in the world. I guess I'm just the worst spouse in the world. I guess I'm the worst parent in the world. I guess I'm the worst child in the world. I guess I'm just the worst worker in the world. And when we say things like this, 
It becomes a self-defensive and overly reactive response that actually works to close our ears to what's being said to us. It's a way that we, like Reuben, refuse to actually reckon with the situation at hand. And so ask yourself, how do I respond with outbursts like Reuben? And this also happens to us after maybe one bad day at, at work, we refuse to address the problem, and instead we go home, we jump on the internet, and we scour online job postings in places far, far away. There are certainly good reasons for changing jobs, but it can't come from a Reuben-like response. Similarly, we might have one bad day at class, and then we go home, and right away, we look at programs and colleges in faraway places, places in other parts of the country. In this way, we, like Reuben, are deferring our responsibilities with reactivity. And just like with distractions, this is an ever more present temptation now than it has ever been before. Never before could we see jobs or colleges or communities or, or even churches all the way across the country, places that we could easily relocate to. Never before have we been so able to simply uproot and leave our communities at a moment's notice. But of course, the hard part is, is that wherever we go, we bring our brokenness with us. And this is the very brokenness that God intends these difficult, challenging situations to address. And so we find ourselves actually running away from the very things that God seeks to heal us through. And this brings us to our second point, acts of reconciliation. The brothers are forced, again, by the conditions of famine to act they take the long journey to Egypt. They stop looking around at each other. By these circumstances that they certainly would not have chosen, God is working good. Because of the famine conditions, they finally take responsibility for their family and for their community. And let us take this truth to heart in our own lives. How do the circumstances that we face, ones that we never would have chosen, how do they grow us in the ways that we need, ways that actually nothing else could? And this dynamic will not only prove true for the brothers, as we'll see, it proves true for Joseph as well. Remember the name that Joseph gives to his firstborn son in Egypt. It's the name Manasseh. And that name communicates this meaning. God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Joseph, it seems, would like to forget everything that has happened in the past associated with his family. And given the seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine, it has been anywhere between seven to 14 years that Joseph has assumed his leadership position in Egypt. And Joseph, he certainly could have gone back and visited his family during this time. He's a ruler in Egypt. The least he could have done was to communicate, to send a message to his father that he's still alive. But he doesn't. Think about that. He simply wants to forget everything that has happened. And we can understand this. Again, Joseph has spent 13 years in unjust captivity and imprisonment, and it's because of what his brothers have done. 
and now it's been somewhere between 20 and 27 years since he has seen them. Joseph is fine with that. But God, God doesn't let Joseph stay in that state. To Joseph's surprise, God also calls a Joseph into action that Joseph would rather avoid. God also addresses a kind of inactivity in Joseph. God pushes Joseph to a forgiveness that he would rather not deal with, let alone actually grant. To Joseph's surprise, he sees his brothers come to him in order to purchase grain from Egypt. Joseph recognizes them, but they have no idea that this Egyptian leader is their brother, Joseph. And to their dismay, Joseph accuses them of being spies. From there, he locks them up and he puts all of them in custody for three days. And so we have to ask, what is going on? What is Joseph doing here? Well, I believe he's giving himself time to think and to pray about what just happened and also about what he should do next. Joseph here takes three days to seek wisdom. The accusation of them being spies gives him time to think and to plan. And after three days, we see Joseph emerge much more measured, and Joseph has a plan. The brothers earlier mentioned that their youngest brother, Benjamin, and and again, that's the only brother Um, who shares the same mother with Joseph, Rachel, they mention that he is alive and he is back at home. Joseph tells them that one of them must stay in custody, and the only way that he will be released is if they return to Egypt with this other son, Benjamin. But why would Joseph do that? Well, Joseph, after three days of pondering and of prayer, he's attempting to force a family reunion. Joseph is wise. We've seen that. And he knows that his brothers will have to come back, especially with Benjamin. Oh, sorry. He knows that they would not come back. They would not come back with Benjamin, especially if they knew that this this leader of of Egypt is, is Joseph. They would think certainly this is one who seeks to do us harm. And given the the seven-year length of the famine, Joseph is confident. Joseph knows that they will have to return. Joseph is forcing them to come back as a full group of 11 brothers. And this isn't easy for Joseph. God has brought Joseph face-to-face with a situation from his past that he would rather avoid, that he would rather ignore. But through his time in Egypt, think about this, through his time in Egypt, Joseph has come to realize that God works all things for good, for that good of conforming his people into what God intends them to be. It is God who has orchestrated each aspect of Joseph's life, and it's God who has actually brought his brothers face to face with him. To refuse reconciliation here would be to refuse the work of God in his own life and in the work of his brother's lives. He named his son Manasseh because he wanted to forget his family hurts and his family hardships. But there's an inherent irony there. Because to speak of forgetting, well, that just is to remember what you are trying to forget. During his time in Egypt, Joseph has been faithful in each and every circumstance that God has presented to him. And now, 
Joseph is called to be faithful in the most difficult circumstance of all. In fact, we see here, we find here for the first time a kind of of emotion, a display of emotion that we have yet to see from Joseph in, in all of the harrowing experiences that he goes through. Joseph, unbeknownst to his brothers, he can understand their speech when they tell each other, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Joseph, hearing and understanding these words, he has to turn away and weep. His own heart is beginning to soften. And in light of all of this, it would be difficult to find a text that calls us more forcefully to forgiveness and to reconciliation. If God calls Joseph Joseph, of all people, to forgiveness and reconciliation, he certainly calls each of us. However, just like his brothers, Joseph has engaged in his own inactivity again after his promotion in Egypt. He doesn't even contact his family. He doesn't even contact his grieving father to let him know that he's still alive. We are all like this in some ways. We, too, try to forget the pains of the past associated both with those that we have wronged and those who have wronged us. And so ask yourself, even now, who is God bringing to mind for you? When you hear all of this, who does God bring to remembrance? What relationship in your life needs the work of forgiveness and reconciliation? And yes, in a fallen world, others may not seek forgiveness. They may not ask for it, and they may not even want it. And that might be where his brothers are at this point, but even here, we do see them expressing some guilt and some remorse for what they have done. Nonetheless, whatever the circumstances, we are called to grant forgiveness. And in this sense, forgiveness is distinct from reconciliation. Reconciliation requires that forgiveness be sought out, be given, and be received by both parties. Forgiveness, however, requires only that you forgive the other in your heart, regardless of their response to the situation. We are called to forgive them, but that doesn't mean that we should let refusal or inability to forgive hold us in captivity. And friends, we have to forgive for the sake of our own souls. As the old saying goes, refusing to forgive is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. We won't often feel like forgiving. Forgiveness often begins simply with a prayerful commitment to forgive. In your own heart, this may be a process that you wrestle with for the rest of your life, especially if the sin against you is very great. And this may have been a lifelong process for Joseph. And it's interesting, as we'll see later in Egypt, after they have been reconciled, the brothers, they still struggle to receive and rest in the forgiveness that Joseph has granted to them. And if you have wronged another person... I encourage you to go and to confess your sins so that you will aid, so that you will help the other person in forgiveness. 
Do not be inactive here. There is not only food, but there is relational reconciliation in Egypt. And so we have to stop looking around at each other because any true and close relationship will necessarily involve actions of repentance and reconciliation. And so ask yourself, do you? Do you tend to simply close off and cut others out when relationships get difficult, when they do require some kind of admission of sin, confession, forgiveness, repentance, reconciliation? Do you, do you have the intentionality to walk through this process of restoration with someone? And trust me, walking through these things will actually strengthen our relationships. Again, we have to turn off the TV or the computer or the phone or the podcast and actually pursue relationships with the people that God has brought into our life through his divine orchestration. And please, please, pursue friendships with the people here in this room, people that you will be fellowshipping with in Christ for the rest of eternity. With that, it's also important to cast a a light on an aspect of, of forgiveness that we can sometimes lose sight of. As difficult as it can be, we are called to forgiveness. But if we forgive those who have broken the law, we still uphold the just legal consequences that come in response to this wrongdoing. If someone has done something against us that merits legal consequences, the Christian call to forgiveness is not a call to avoid the legal system. In fact, in the present situation, if the brothers have lied about Benjamin, if they have done to Benjamin what they have done to Joseph, then they cannot return to Egypt and presumably... Simeon will remain indefinitely in custody. In the temporal justice of Egypt, Simeon's imprisonment would be the penalty for Benjamin's death. And the the theologian Oliver O'Donovan is helpful here. He says, "In, in speaking of Christ's charge, the charge to visit those in prison, O'Donovan points out that an important aspect of this practice He says, assuming one's prison sentence is just, and of course it's not always just, but assuming it is just, the practice of visiting those in prison, it both supports and transcends and so relativizes the action of our society's legal system. For instance, if Simeon were to stay in prison indefinitely, Joseph would visit him in just this way. In visiting the prisoner, who has received the justice of the state, the church does not refuse or repudiate the sentence that the prisoner has received. The church actually upholds it. But the church also relativizes the sentence by communicating that this just verdict is only temporal and it's not final. The final verdict on their life, on our life, on anyone's life, is the verdict that only God himself can give. And that brings us to our third and final point, acts of repentance. Again, God calls us to action. Specifically, he calls us to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. In this passage, God confronts Joseph and his brothers with circumstances that demand their loving action. 
The brothers are called to love their family and their community by putting away distractions and working to provide things for the well-being of their family and community. Similarly, Joseph is called to love his brothers in a very difficult way. He's called to forgive and to reconcile with them, a process that we'll see reach its full fruition in their return, the brothers' return to Egypt. In both ways, Joseph and his brothers are called to love their neighbor as themselves. However, this love for neighbor must flow from a deeper love. It has to flow from our love for God. But how is this so? Well, let's again return to the difficulty of forgiveness. In fact, in our modern moment, we just have to look around. It certainly seems like forgiveness is in very short supply. Literature professor and writer Alan Jacobs, he tells us that our society has lost the key resource for forgiveness. And that key resource is the Christian God. He warns us that when we lose the Christian God, we lose the God who forgives. And when we lose the God who forgives, we lose a society that forgives. Jacobs writes this, When a society rejects the Christian account of who we are, it doesn't become less moralistic, but far more so, because it retains an inchoate sense of justice but has no means of offering and receiving forgiveness. The great moral crisis of our time is not, as many of my fellow Christians believe, sexual licentiousness, but rather vindictiveness. Take note, Jacob deems this moral vindictiveness that stands wholly against the forgiving call of Christ, he identifies this as the great moral crisis of our time. And in this way, the present passage is a stark alternative to our modern moment. Why is forgiveness hard? Well, because human forgiveness at its core, it requires that we also understand ourselves as those in need of forgiveness. It is much, much easier to lob accusations and condemnations at other people than to recognize all of the way that we ourselves fall short even of the, the standards that we, we, we impose upon others. We don't even keep our own morality. As the theologian Miroslav Volf puts it, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. Forgiveness requires the hard work of acknowledging that the ones we are called to forgive, well, they're humans just like us, and we are sinners just like them. And in this passage, we see both a negative and a positive example of this. Negatively, Reuben declares to his brothers about Joseph, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Reuben refuses to recognize his guilt, and he simply blames his brothers for what has happened. And this is going to separate, at least at this point, it separates Reuben from the confession of sin, from receiving forgiveness, and ultimately from any true reconciliation. He believes that his brothers are among the community of the sinners, but he is not. He alone among them does not need forgiveness. In contrast, Joseph does come to recognize his own place among the community of sinners. Again, he takes three days to ponder 
and pray. He knows that he also did wrong to his brothers. We, we, we talked about that in an earlier sermon. Absolutely, they did much, 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 much worse to him. But even Joseph in the narrative is not without fault. But importantly, Joseph also does something else. When he sees his brothers come to him and bow down before him, we are told, Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. Dreams have played a very big role in the Joseph narrative. But recall the words of Joseph in the prison that he gives to the cupbearer and the baker before he interprets their dreams. He says, do not interpretations belong to God? Also consider what he says to Pharaoh before he interprets the dream of Pharaoh. It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. In both cases, Joseph acknowledges that it is God alone who provides the dream's interpretations. But when Joseph has his dreams about his brothers, we don't see Joseph looking to God. Instead, Joseph has way too much confidence in his own understanding of things. In Joseph's first dream about his brothers, if you remember, he receives a prophecy about things that will actually happen. And in fact, they're happening right now. That in that first dream, the bundle of wheat that he has bound, it rises up and the bundles that are gathered by his brother, they bow down to his bundle of wheat. That's happening right here in this passage. Joseph's brothers, without grain or food, they are bowing down to him in order to receive grain from him. But the second dream about his family is different. Remember how Joseph recounts it. Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he shares the details of this dream, Jacob, his father, he expresses disbelief at Joseph's interpretation. Jacob says, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves down to the ground before you? We talked about this in an earlier sermon, but this interpretation doesn't actually map on to the events of what happens. Jacob never does bow down to Joseph. And instead, near the end of the Joseph narrative, it is actually Joseph who bows down to Jacob when Jacob is, named, or is blessing his sons. And we can go further. Joseph's mother, Rachel, is dead. And so not only does Jacob not bow down, but Rachel simply cannot bow down. But yes, Jacob will bow down. Yes, Rachel will bow down. Yes, each of the brothers and their tribes will bow down. But they will not bow down to Joseph. They will bow down to the one who stands in the place of Joseph, to the one who stands in the place of all of us. Joseph remembers his dream, and then he prays and he ponders for three days. And it is in this time, I believe, that Joseph receives the true interpretation of this dream, the interpretation that belongs to God. Yes, Joseph's brothers come down and bow before him, and he is moved to forgive them. But Joseph can do this because of the one to whom all of the members of his family will one day bow down, in the resurrection, Joseph can forgive them because of the one day, one day, the one to whom he will bow down. 
And this is the one who has lavished a much deeper and a much freer forgiveness. One that Joseph himself has come to receive. Joseph here comes to see himself in the community of his brothers, in the community of sinners. And he sees that there is only one outside of this community. And it's the one to whom he and to whom all of us will one day bow down. And this one is Christ. Again, none of us even meet the standards of, the, uh, you know, of our own makeshift ethics that we endorse, that we espouse, that we force on others. But Christ, Christ is God the Son become human to live the perfect ethic of God. Christ loves both God and neighbor perfectly on our behalf. Unlike the young Joseph, Christ is the one who receives the love of the Father in humility and seeks to share it with both his brothers and his sisters, all of us. Unlike the brothers, Christ does not seize the life of another, but upon the cross he gives his life for us. Unlike the ruler Joseph who refuses to leave the riches of Egypt to reconcile with his brothers, Christ takes poverty among himself to seek us out in the form of a servant to reconcile us to God the Father. Unlike Joseph, Christ does not put his brother in custody for three days, but he himself descends for three days into the place of the dead, and he emerges not with a plan for reconciliation, but with the ultimate reconciliation that is the resurrection. Unlike Jacob, who holds back his presumed only son, God the Father freely gives his only begotten son to us. Unlike Joseph, who sells grain from an Egyptian storehouse, Christ is the very bread of life who has graciously given his life for the life of his people. This is the interpretation of the second dream as provided by God. This is the dream interpretation I believe that Joseph receives in those three days. And friends, we are all among the community of sinners. But we are also among the community of humans, the image bearers who God loves dearly. And so we come to Christ in repentance, acknowledging and confessing our sin, but we also come in joy. So grave were our sins that they merited, they demanded the death of Christ upon the cross. But God so loved us as his image bearers that Christ freely gave his life for us. And this is the sobering yet joyful reality of repentance, a repentance that leads us to faith. And this is the final verdict of God for his people. And so this text calls us, just like Joseph, to bow down in praise and adoration before Christ Jesus, the one who has given his life for us, who has taken our guilt upon himself so that we could, by faith, join the community of the church, those reconciled to God the Father by the work of Christ. This is why we are called and enabled for loving action, loving action toward both God and neighbor, and to the extent that we refuse reconciliation, or to the extent that, 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 that we sort of content ourselves with a kind of relational stalemate, we are denying the glory and the salvation of Christ. But when we seek out others because Christ first sought us out, then we, along with Joseph, are bowing down 
in worship to our great and to our gracious Savior. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you for the good action that you called us to. And we thank you, Lord, that it is always and only a response of gratitude to what you have already done for us and your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. Amen.